Hey everyone, uh, welcome to the show. A couple of very quick notes. Um, I am uh, taking care of the boys tonight, and they are not settling down when they should be, and that's kind of part of dad life. So, in the early parts of this episode, you will hear a little bit of complaining from the younger one, from Mac. Um, and uh, today's guest is uh, a resident of Melbourne, Australia. So between um, Andrew, myself, and uh, Steph Gaskell, our guest, we're in three very different time zones. So coordinating this was a little bit of a challenge. So sometimes we, uh, you know, have to make sacrifices. So my apologies for the the distressed child in the background. And the other point is that um, today's show is really one of two parts. Like we we could have split it, but I, I really did want to deliver it in a single piece. Um, the, the first half of the show is very much on topic. The second half of the show is slightly off topic, but we kept it in because we think there's some really terrific information in there. So I, uh, hope you'll enjoy. Hi everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And today's topic is FODMAP and uh, specifically how this group of uh, nutrients uh, play a role in uh, our endurance-related diets. Now, I have a, a, personal, <laughs> a personal relationship with this, uh, this topic because uh, I do suffer from IBD and uh, I've been using a FODMAP-restricted diet for quite some time. Uh, in acute stages of uh, of disease, and uh, if you hear it in my in the background, <laughs> I, uh, I still have a couple of uh, a couple of fellows who are settling down for their for the bedtime. So uh, forgive the uh, the intrusions there. Anyway, so uh, suffering from IBD, I uh, I found I came across FODMAP restriction um, maybe two three years ago, and uh, in acute cases in acute symptom cases, I uh, I do watch um, that my foods avoid FODMAPs. Um, but, uh, there is actually a really interesting, uh, line of, of research that looks into the effects of this kind of eating on endurance performance. So both in training and in racing nutrition, and there may be some, uh, some answers to GI distress in, uh, certain athletic populations, um, from, uh, somewhat unlikely sources. So for today's episode, we reached, uh, to pretty much the exact opposite uh, side of the world from us, uh, from uh, Melbourne, Australia, we got Steph Gaskell joining us on the show um, to help us understand this topic. Steph, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Easy. So in a few words or more than a few words, if you could tell us what your research is all about and uh, how you spend your time. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess for me, like I've always been interested in the area of, um, you know, of gastrointestinal nutrition and, and similar um, in terms of I had some issues myself, but irritable bowel-like symptoms. Um, yep. And so, um, yeah, I, I sort of had been seeing a lot of um, endurance athletes in my private practice um, complaining of, of symptoms during, during exercise um, and I would consult to a lot of, um, patients that have um, irritable bowel, inflammatory bowel with, with some IBS component to it. 
Um, and so for that, we would look at implementing what we say as a low FODMAP diet for a short period of time to see if we could get an improvement in their functional symptoms. Um, and what we found for some of them is, you know, we, we could get an improvement. Um, and then what we would do is we'd do some challenges with, with FODMAPs um, just to, to see what the main trigger is for each individual. Um, right. We never want to put someone on a low FODMAP diet for a long period of time. Um, and that's just because, you know, it potentially can change the type of, you know, gut bacteria that we have and we don't necessarily think that's a great thing. Um, and we also want to make sure people are still, you know, able to have some flexibility in their diet um, and not overly restrict foods that they don't need to. For sure. Before we go down too too far down the road of uh, of talking about uh, interventions, um, I would love for you to describe what FODMAPs are because I'm sure our listeners are wondering <laughs> what it is that we're talking about, and maybe list some uh, some common food sources uh, for uh, for these. So FODMAPs um, stands for a big long scary name, I guess. So. Um, it's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And basically all this means is they're types of fermentable carbohydrates that are like they're commonly found in a range of foods. So okay. um, examples are um, so lactose is a FODMAP. So foods that are high in lactose can be milk, yogurt, ice cream typically. Um, and then um, fructose in excess of glucose. So we don't chop out all foods that contain fructose. It's only typically the foods that have more fructose than glucose. So examples of that can be, you know, apples, pears, honey. Um, there's a range of a range of foods there, um, and then. Fructans is what we say are the oligosaccharide component. And all, I don't know, um, so all disaccharides, oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, all that means is it's how many sugars. So disaccharide is two sugar units, which is lactose. Monosaccharide is just one sugar unit. And oligo is just like many sugar units joined together. So that's kind of like the chemistry side of it. Um so some FODMAPs are also what we call fructans and what they're commonly found in. And this, this is probably the, the most common one that tends to influence symptoms for people. Some of the work at Monash is that we've identified that, you know, fructans tends to be probably one of the more significant triggers for majority of people. And they're commonly found in our diets. So they're found in wheat, rye, barley in large amounts. Okay. Um, and also in onion, um, garlic. So, you know, like everyone pretty much will have these types of, you know, foods in their diet. Um, and then we've also got polyols, which are just what we call sugar alcohols. Um, and they're found in things like the stone fruits, um, chewing gum for a lot of people that have, right. you know. So some artificial sweeteners typically, yeah? That's where you'll find sugar alcohols? Yeah, the type of artificial um, it's not like what's in your diet code, um, like artame and stuff, but it's what if you look at examples of things like extra and those those ones and it will say 
excessive consumption may give you a laxative effect. Um, and so when you look at the ingredients, you'll typically see something like mannitol or sorbitol. So you'll see these um, names that end in ols, xylitol, um, and they're typically what we say are polyols, and we just don't absorb them very well. Um, so what happens with FODMATs is when we consume foods that are that are high in FODMATs, for some individuals, we just don't absorb them very well. We either don't absorb them or we absorb them really slowly. Um, and what tends to happen is um, it'll end up in our large intestine where we normally have, well, we, we all have bacteria. That's completely normal. Um, what bacteria want to do is they want to break down these carbohydrates because it's like a food source for them. Um, and when they do that, they produce gas and byproducts and we get a bit of what we say is a water carrying effect. Um, and what this can influence is symptoms like stomach pain, we can get bloating, we can get wind, we can get loose bowel movements. Some people will get um, constipation. Um, So people can go either way. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, Some people will alternate. Um, We can get reflux. So your typical IBS-y type of of symptoms is what some individuals will find when they eat foods that are high, high in FODMAPs. Interesting. Hearing you go through all of this, it's kind of like illuminating a a bright light on a lot of questions I had that I didn't really know that they were related in the past. So for example, um, chewing gum, I, I used to chew a fair amount just as kind of a habit more than anything. And I noticed it was, um, during that time, I'd always have some irritable bowel symptoms and, since I've stopped that, it's pretty much gone away. So things like that, um, it's it's just really interesting to hear all of these things come together that they can be related like that. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. hearing all the talk about bacteria, I know it's a really hot topic right now. But the uh, the gut microbiome and how much that can influence your health and your um, just your overall feeling of comfort. Uh, so it's it's really neat to hear all this tie in together. Mm, yeah, definitely. And things like your chewing gums, they'll, they have a lot of those polyols in there. Um, so, you know, there's there's quite a significant hit. Um, and they're also in like for athletes, they're in products that are, you know, like your typical um, low-carb bars, like your protein bars that can be low-carb. Um, I was just about to say, yeah, a lot of supplements have them too. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so – and. You know, if people are downing, you know, those, even just one can have quite a significant amount because we're not talking about um, a huge quantity of these FODMAPs um, that we need to create an issue. Um, so, and then when we think, if we relate it to athletes, you know, athletes, depending on the type of athlete, endurance athletes will typically have, you know, a higher energy intake than their sedentary um, individuals, um, and they'll, for some athletes have a higher carbohydrate intake. Um, and what, I don't know if you guys know Dana Lee over there, but she's from, from Canada and she's done research in this area as well. And, um, she actually, um, had a look at a, at a endurance athletes typical intake, um, of FODMAP. Okay. Um, and what she found is that this um, athlete, he was a ultra endurance type of athlete, so multi sport stuff. He actually had a daily intake of about 
80 grams of FODMATs in a day. And to put that in perspective, an average adult in our Western type of diet, we tend to have about 25 grams of FODMATs a day. Crazy, right. So you can see that just because of, you know, we're eating more fruit, we're eating more vegetables, we've just got a bigger quantity, um, that FODMAP intake will will skyrocket. So um, even for some athletes, it may not be that they typically need, it depends, but they may not need like a, a significantly low FODMAP intake. But for some, for some of them, it may just be reducing and dialing down on certain foods that are really common in their diet. Right. And that's really eye-opening because you're absolutely right. You know, we're, you know, uh, our caloric intake for endurance athletes is easily, you know, when we're training big weeks, easily twice what you know, the average population will have. And especially if, uh, if we're primarily fueled or at least, you know, 45, 50% fueled by carbohydrates, you know, the, all of the FODMAPs are a, a style of carbohydrate, right? So it's very easy to find and find them in our, in the common, in the common foods. And especially if we're eating more calories and a larger portion of those calories are carbohydrates. I totally take your point. That's, uh, that's yeah. So you might not even be especially sensitive to FODMAPs, but just the, the sheer volume and the sheer quantity can, uh, can trigger symptoms. Exactly. One of the other things too, that I, I find <clears throat> a bit challenging with this is just, there's no common thread with a lot of the foods. It's not like, you know, you're keeping all citrus foods or fruits out of your, your diet or cutting out gluten or something like that, where it's pretty obvious where those are tied in, but it just, it seems to go all across the map and there's no, not necessarily from an outsider's perspective, there's no rhyme or reason really what, uh, what foods might contain a lot of these. Mm, yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, we, as a, as a dietitian would encourage anyone that thinks that they may have an issue um, or experiencing these types of symptoms. I mean, we would always say, you know, um, go and get this checked out first. So, because obviously there can be underlying issues for, for individuals. So, um, you know, we'd want to do a proper, proper screen for, for an individual, see if there's anything, you know, medically underlying. Um, and then if it is, you know, more simply, you know, irritable bowel type symptoms, or we have IBD with the part of that being IBS, then we we would encourage people to see a, a qualified dietitian nutritionist um, to work to go through with them in a supervised way, um, looking at low FODMAP diet if it's relevant to them. Um, because as I said, it's we only really want to do it for a short period of time, so it may be two to four weeks. Um, and what's really important, um, and I, I sort of had to listen to one of the dietitians you interviewed um, some uh, a wee while ago, and she was saying how she likes to promote, you know, foods that are really what you can have versus what you can't have. Um, yes. And that's what's really important. So when I go through things with people, it's more about, okay, well, yeah, these are the ones that we, we need to avoid, but hey, these are all the, the foods that you can have and these are all the alternatives. Whereas if someone's doing them doing this by themselves and they don't have, you know, like um, great knowledge in the area, they, what I tend to find is they just keep cutting and cutting and cutting so their diet is quite restrictive and then they may eventually come and see someone but then they potentially have gotten their symptoms and their gut more and more sensitive because they've just kept on taking out more and more foods. 
Um, and that's not what we want to do. Uh, it's, it's important. Okay, well, these are the ones we're going to avoid for a short period of time. These are all the ones that we can have and, and making sure that we're still getting in, you know, our nutritional intake because there's a huge range of foods that people can have. Um, so as an example, when I talk about, okay, you know, uh, wheat, rye and barley in large amounts, that that's the problem. Um, it's important to understand, I think, for people is that they're not following a gluten-free diet um, and that's what a lot of people can also get in, confused about so they think oh well I can't have any wheat at all um and so then they're choosing all these foods that are gluten-free um but they don't need to do that it's it's just avoiding you know wheat rind barley in large quantities wheat in small amounts is fine so breadcrumbs on things are fine wheat in sauces and stocks is fine um there's certain sourdough breads that people can have that contain wheat but they've a traditional sourdough process makes that bread lower in fructose. Um, so people won't know this necessarily if they're doing it by themselves. Um, so that's why it's really important that I'd always encourage someone to go and see someone that actually you know works in the area. Um, and obviously, as you guys, some of you know, you know Monash are the leading kind of group that that did the research in this area. So they've got a really um, handy, you know, website and app um, that explains this. Right. And we'll link to that. We'll link to that in our, in our show notes as well. And just a, just a quick point for, for Monash. That's how uh, I originally got in touch with Steph and uh, they're a university in Victoria and Australia uh, who, who, as she said, yeah, do a lot of this, a lot of this great research. And Steph, what is your relationship with the university? I should have asked earlier on. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I worked with um, the Monash group some time ago, just in, in private. And then basically after, um, some years in private I just um I always had this interest in you know in athletes and thinking there was this link with um potentially with FODMAPs so um I then went to Monash Uni and I'm now currently doing my PhD um so I'm doing research in in endurance athletes and factors that can you know influence symptoms for athletes and how we can potentially try and reduce um, reduce the risk of, of these symptoms so that so that's kind of my um, uh, my tie-in with Monash and last year I did research and we looked at the role of a low versus a high FODMAP diet 24 hours before what we say is exertional stress so basically okay. what we did is we gave I had endurance runners I had 18 males and eight females um, from recreational to high level. So I had, yeah, um, your standard recreational guys, but I also had some higher like 215 marathoners. Um, okay. Wow. And then I had some ultra guys. I had some Solomon um, runners and then, and then more recreational level. Um, and what we did is we gave them a, uh, the the diet so we actually made the food so I knew how much FODMAP was in each diet um we gave that to them 24 hours before um then the morning of our testing we gave them a high or low FODMAP breakfast two hours before they were going to do um this exercise intervention 
Um, So then what we did is we got them to run on a treadmill for two hours, so not the most exciting. Um, They ran at 60% of the um, VO2, so so 60% of intensity, and we chose that because that's kind of like the standard intensity that ultra-endurance athletes will you know, typically go through for, for ultra endurance running at least. Right. Um, and we actually had them in 35 degree heat. Um, oh, so you're applying a heat stress too. Um, the reason we put them in this environment is because we, we know that that environment is where we get gut disturbances huh, okay. and we know that we're not going to be able to get, you know, an endurance athlete to run on the treadmill for 12 hours. <laughs> so um, it's either, either, either two hours in the heat guys or 12 hours. You can pick your poison, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that, that's really important though, because if we're wanting to look at the effect that FODMAPs have, um, in endurance athletes, we need to make sure that we're, um, getting them in the environment that's happening for them. Um, you know, so we're getting them to the point that, where they're running at, let's say it might be six, seven or eight hours into the endurance leg. And this is where, you know, um, we tend to see um, the damage. So so basically they ran for two hours on the treaty. Um, they just consumed uh, water um, to keep you hydrated. They did this as per thirst um, We because if we were forcing it, we'd probably get symptoms. Right. Um, but we made sure that they were hydrated, so they weren't dehydrated. Um, and then post, so they finished the, their run. Um, we gave them a recovery beverage that was either high or low FODMAP. Okay. Um, and then we monitored them for another, uh, I think three hours, three or four hours. Um, and then they, they headed off back home, but they recorded, um, a symptom log. So the things that we were recording, were their symptoms. So we recorded symptoms every 15 minutes. Um, so they were pretty sick of me asking them, you know, a whole list of questions about <laughs> the gut. Um, so these are subjective symptoms, obviously, right? Like this is how you're feeling. They were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's really relevant to do it every sort of 15 minutes because as, as many of us will know, symptoms can change just like that. Oh, you know, sure. one minute we be feeling fine. And then it can it can quickly change. Um, so we measured symptoms. We we measured we did bloods pre um, post um, exercise. Um, we checked for malabsorption. So we did um, measure what we call breath hydrogen. Um, so that's to check. Okay, well, our, are we malabsorbing the fodmaps that we've we've given you? Okay. Um. And the bloods, what we were looking at there is we were looking at changes um, to the gut. So with exercise, we can get damage damage to the gut. So we were measuring certain markers there um, and if FODMAPs were having a role um, in that regard. Um, we also, this was a, a good one for, for the runners, um, they also had to wear a rectal um, probe, um, which not everyone loves. Yeah, good um, but we, yeah, but again, we needed to do this because we've got them running in 35 degrees. Um, so we need to make sure, you know, if they're getting towards 40, we call it, you know, we've got to call it quits, but we yeah. also need to get their temperature up to a reasonable amount where we know that this, you know, damage is, is happening. So, um, so that was, I guess, yeah, that was my research um, last year and um, 
what we what we found out is that I should say that these athletes they didn't have any known um, gut disorder, so they had no known you know IBD, no known IBS. But what they had is they were experiencing symptoms during the their running, during their training, during their racing, which as we know in endurance athletes, you know, more than 60% um, of athletes participating in events will get severe symptoms. Um, so so we wanted to look at athletes that didn't have IBS but got symptoms during and is there a role to play with FODMAPs for these individuals. Um, and, and what we found is that um, – a high FODMAP diet um, increased the severity of their symptoms. Huh. Um, so, so both on both diets, the athletes had still had a high level of symptoms. So the incidence of symptoms were the same, but the severity of symptoms was much worse on a high FODMAP diet versus the low FODMAP diet. Um, okay. Yeah, so um and and the reason why the incidence is still there is because FODMAPs is is a is a trigger for symptoms. But when we talk about and think about athletes that get these symptoms, you need to think about what happens to to the gut when they're exercising. Um so yeah, I don't know if you want me to explain that. Yeah, or, please do actually. You know, I think that's I think that's super relevant. Yeah. Um so what happens basically when we exercise, um, as many of us will know, you know, blood is wanting to go to the muscles. Um, so we get a diversion of the blood um, that wants to go more so to the muscles versus to the gut. Right. So we get a reduction, a reduction in blood flow to the gut, so a reduction in blood flow to our gastrointestinal tract, to our gastrointestinal organs um, because we need to get, um, you know, energy to the muscles. We also need to um, get rid of heat that we're producing. Um, so we want blood flow um, to go to the peripheries. Um, we also get, uh, with, that, with that reduction in blood flow, what can happen is if we continue to exercise and we're getting this, this exertional stress, what happens is we can get some damage and injury to the lining of our gut. Um, okay. and so, and then if this continues to happen and we're getting more and more injuries to the, to the lining of our gut, what then can happen is we can get, um, gaps in, I guess, gaps in the proteins lining our gut. So then we can get things like, um, bacterial components that will leak from our gut into our circulation. Huh. Now, is that a common phenomenon? Is that something like anytime you do a really long event or a really hard event, you you will you will have some degree of this? Yeah, so for definitely for the exertional for for long endurance events for sure, um, we need okay. yeah the the stress needs to be reasonable. You know, like if you're going for a jog for an hour, then no. Um, but definitely in events like your Ironmans, in your 100ks, in your 50ks, if it's in you know. Um, severe temperature um these things can happen it but for each individual their response can be different and the severity will can be different as well so um so what we know is we'll we will get some injury 
Um, but the extent right. of that will depend on the extent of the of the exercise and the individual, you know, how fit they are, you know, what are they doing nutrition-wise, et cetera. Um, all those factors are gonna are gonna be involved. Um Sure. So we're all going to, we're all going to experience some symptoms. So then, um, your research suggests that if the, the fuel that was in that, you know, potentially compromised gut is, uh, heavy in FODMAPs, then you, you saw, uh, symptoms that were of higher severity. So what, what do you think, or what, what does your research show is the mechanism for that? Yeah. Um, so, so there's two pathways. So that first pathway is the blood flow. Um, pathway the other pathway when you exercise as you um, know is we get what we say is an increase in our sympathetic drive so you know when we you know we get excited we get a whole rush of um, you know adrenaline and those types of things happening so um, with exercise we get an increase in this um, in this system so you've got sympathetic um, which is like turn on um, and then we've got parasympathetic um, so what happens when we turn this sympathetic drive on, um, we get a reduction in the, in the function of our gut. So the gut's not working mm. as well. Um, right. it's slowing this is down. the rest and digest versus exactly. fight and flight yeah, exactly. balance. Yeah. Yeah. So our digestion's slowing down. Um, our absorption can be, can be impaired. So we've got these two pathways, um, and we, um, we we kind of we with those two pathways. That's where for each individual, if they complain of symptoms. So say I get an a, a Ironman athlete, and they come up to me and they say, "Oh, Steph, like I've got, um, I'm getting into my races. Um, I'm fine on the bike leg, on the run leg. I um, I'm refluxing up. I'm starting to vomit. Um, I'm getting bloating. I'm getting gas." Um, I, very, very common story, by the way. <laughs> very common story, yeah. Um, I cannot tell just from them telling me that what what's happening because it could be happening from either of these pathways. It could be happening um, from what we call is the circulatory pathway. We call it the um, the circulatory gastrointestinal pathway, or it could be happening through this neuro neuroendocrine pathway. Um, huh, okay. And so I can't say to that athlete, okay, well, we'll just implement a low FODMAP diet and everything's going to be okay. Um, I really ideally would like to work with that athlete and find out, you know, what's, what's actually going on for them. So what we do here is we do a gut assessment. So I would get that individual to come into our, our lab and I would test them. So I would put them under conditions that's relevant to their sport, and I would I would I would test and see what's happening. So I would have a look at okay, well, what's what's happening with their body temperature, um, what's happening with heart rate and those types of things, the sympathetic stuff. What's happening with absorption? What's happening with gut injury? Um, because owning really then when I have that more objective data. Can I be more certain or more sure as to what I need to do to help that athlete? So there's a couple things that uh, that I wanted to ask, and you were on a fantastic roll, so I didn't want to interrupt you at all. 
Um, <laughs> but there, so first of all, you brought up the, the point of temperature. Um, so this is something that I'm personally fascinated in is just the role of temperature and heat on athletic performance. Um, so you'd mentioned having two hours, um, at higher temperatures, so 35, which would be pretty miserable. Um, I've done some heat chamber testing at 30 and that was bad. So 35, just that makes me shudder, but, um, <laughs> So that was one point. And then the other one was that um, it sounds like with the the extra intensity of a race, you might be um, like a diet that would normally be okay through most of your training that isn't as intense on race day. That might be enough to push you over the edge where you do have all these problems. Um, so, and is that just the damage mechanism that you're, you're mentioning there? Yeah. Um, yeah, so definitely. Um, it, it, it's kind of both of those um, pathways that can be involved. So that neuroendocrine pathway, so where we get that switch on on the sympathetic part, um, that's slowing things down. So our gut's just not able to absorb and digest things as well. Um, and then also because of that blood flow away from the gut, um, dependent on the injury that we're getting, then again, you know, absorption, digestion, um, is going to be affected. We also see a lot of athletes, um, and it's an area that we're researching in is, um, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, a lot of endurance guys can get what we call kind of like this gut shutdown. Like they're just, they can't take anything else on. They're just like, nothing's going down. The gut is just shut down. It just, it's, it's just, um, what happens is, as we exercise, the longer we exercise, um, the more we find our gut slows down. So, you know, kind of what we say is gastric emptying, so how quickly food moves from the stomach through to your intestine. Yep. That that slows down. So um, we're looking at that and doing more research in that area and just seeing the effects of hour upon hour, What what's that delay we get? Um, and, um, and that, that will affect things, you know, if your gut's shutting down and, and your food's only emptying slowly, but then you're trying to put more and more in, um, it, it's not going to end well, you know, you're not getting food and nutrients to your muscles. So then we're going to get fatigued. That's, that's fascinating because, you know, uh, not directly related to FODMAPs necessarily, but, um, a prime example would be if we're, you know, we're training, you know, we're getting people to train the gut to absorb the maximum, you know, quantity of carbohydrate per hour, right? And you're, you know, I have, I have folks, I'm, I'm a triathlon coach and I have folks who I can reliably say hundred percent on the bike, you are getting, you know, close to that 90 gram per hour mixed source, you know, ceiling and, uh, yeah. you know, everything's digesting well and performance is great. Um, and then we, even on the run, they can get pretty close to that sometimes, but, um, you know, in practice, then we go and do a, a really long race, something like an Ironman, which is, you know, 10 to 15 hours for most of us. Then you're looking at, uh, you know, the, I look at their logs after the race. And I'm like, what happened to your nutrition on the run? And I'm like, well, this is yeah. all I could, I could get in. And that's, you know, there's, you know, intuitively we know that there's something that's going on. But it's really interesting to hear um, a theory about the actual mechanism that is, uh, that is affecting that uh, that or that is yeah that's the cause for that observation mm, yeah definitely and you know with any event or race we always need to consider like the environment there that they're in so sure. you know like i'll tend to target you know 
for some people it might be a higher carb intake in the cooler races but then in in the extreme races in the heat you know we'll we'll tend to probably dial that down because we're factoring in you know this um the lack of blood flow you know things are going to slow down more etc so um yeah for sure and on the bike um as we know just with symptoms um you know symptoms are so much greater when we run um mm-hmm. just because of that um that impact and the jostling of our of our gastrointestinal tract um and um and then again you know you think iron man all right well we've had the swim we've had the bike leg we've already done uh, you know five six depending on the athlete you know hours and then we're right. getting into the run um so we've also got that duration there um and then and then with an iron man you know like with any event we're getting for most people more and more you know dehydrated um uh, so that's gonna you know also impact on things so <laughs> the snowball effect oh, sorry that's a bad maybe that's a bad term for you guys it's a uh, what, what do you what's the australian version of a snowball effect i don't i don't even know oh no snowball effect yeah it is like we all say that as well it's just like this vicious you know cycle is it's just yeah and i guess that's why i love it because it's always like it it can be a challenge and there's no one answer for every individual and I think that's what we always say is like um one one thing is not going to be the answer for everyone it's it's so individual um but but the rewarding thing is you know we get athletes like I've had a pro triathlete fly over from from um Spain because his races were ending and this is his you know it's it's his income um, right. And it's devastating for that individual because, you know, their life is spent training, but then they get to their race um, and they're just not able to to finish. Um, and so, so we have them come over where we can do that testing and actually find out, you know, what is it. So with this particular athlete, I was working with him online um, just because obviously making the flight is not, <laughs> yeah. not so cool. So if we if we can do it, you know, without that, and there's there's people that definitely we have to do that. So, um, but we just got to the stage where it was like I just said to him, look, we can keep doing this kind of trial and error approach, um, or you know, come down, let us test you, um, and you know, and potentially then we could have you know the answer for you, um, or at least a strategy, a more directed strategy um for the athlete um so you know so that's what for some people that's what we need to do sure and how did it work out for him he did really well he ended up winning a a key race um in arizona um and then another race not that uh not that long after i think um so so far so good um we're tracking um and we may we may do a case study we just kind of want to see more you know um more work just to be able to confirm some some findings it's often said that iron man is an eating contest and this is just more proof than ever <laughs> so just uh, the proper nutrition and the proper preparation for everything mm, yeah yeah and so one of these athletes i worked with what happened was when their body temp got to a certain um level um it was like things just shut down for him um Hmm. so it was 
it was actually thinking, okay, well, this athlete needs to do some more exertional heat training um, and then we need to think of nutrition strategies that are going to help um, reduce his body temperature um, and and then we also needed to do, you know, some more sort of fluid and gut training for, for that individual. But without me doing that testing, I would never have known that, you know, like I, I wouldn't have had that data. I wouldn't have known, okay, well, when we got to, you know, 39 degrees or whatever, this is then we just saw this massive spiral. And so what is it about the temperature that causes that that additional impact? Yeah. Um, so basically what happens, like normally our body temp around that sort of, um, and it will vary for people, um, 37 degrees or so, um, when, when we exercise, what we tend to find is when our temperature goes kind of towards that as a rough guide 39 degrees that's when we'll tend to find more damage so that's when we tend to find a lot of the gut disturbances happening and that's a blood flow issue right like primarily that because there's more shunted to the periphery for cooling that that you're getting even less blood flow to the gut than you would just from you know the muscular load yep 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 Exactly. People are just adapted differently to how they they manage um, they manage the the body temp um, and and depending on their training and their fitness level as well. What I'm really surprised by, and you know, it was a bit of an eye opener for me, is how much testing goes into this. Because I always, you know, my experience with you know sport nutrition is just you know from the side of a coach. I definitely have some, but never, you know, certainly not to this not to this level of detail. But I always did think it was a trial and error process. You know, he's like, well, we think that well, these are some common trigger things and let's try avoiding them and see how that works. And that's been my, my own personal, you know, experience and practice with, uh, with FODMAP elimination diets. Um, but the fact that you can do all of this testing and you can say that, you know, you at, at a certain thermal stress, that's when you start running into trouble or at like this level of dehydration, you start running into trouble. This is, you know, I'm, I'm a big, you know, science nerd and I, I love the fact that you can actually get, um, you know, you can quantify some of these, uh, um, some of these strategies that so far that you know primarily have been for most of us very sort of fuzzy and ad hoc. Um, so that's that's super exciting. Yeah, definitely. And like, um, I, I guess I was lucky as well because I'm I'm um, I initially wasn't from Melbourne, so I was from Adelaide. And um, in my practice, we we were doing this trial and error. A lot of the time and for many they they may need to do that but um I, I moved to Melbourne and one of the main reasons I moved to Melbourne is because um <clears throat> there's a uh my supervisor who's Ricardo Costa he's done a lot of research and work in this area and he was a pro triathlete himself um so I just it was the right environment for me like I knew okay this is I need to go to Melbourne because this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, and, um, and he's really opened up my eyes, you know, um, and, and yeah, just that, you know, we, he just keeps saying to me, Steph, like he gets so frustrated when people want to give this advice when they have no idea, you know, they don't, (laughs) they don't know. And it's just hilarious to me because I know he's going to go on this, um, tangent and, and, and just get frustrated with it, but it's, it's, it's true. Um, 
so so it's been you know like he's just got so much knowledge in the area and I'm just lucky to learn to learn from him but you know we can and we can also test like we'll test the oxidation levels you know are they a good you know carb burner fat burner sure. what is the actual you know oxidation capacity and stuff so yeah so like so metabolic um, capacity kind of tra- or testing yeah like so when i had the guys running um for a couple hours well not that study but another one that i'm doing now we're testing you know the the oxidation levels so carbohydrate um and and fat um, and then we're we're looking at absorption as well. So just because we're getting in 90 grams of carbs an hour, like do they actually need that, and are they actually absorbing it? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and when you said when you said earlier about your supervisor, that's I, I I think that's spot on. Like if you're look if you don't know, you're guessing, right? And if you're if you're in the business of of giving advice to people who pay you to do that, you know it behooves you to really, you know, know as much as you can to give the best kind of advice. And uh, yeah, I, like listening to you talk, thinking about the advice that I give people for nutrition, I'm like, really, I'm just guessing, you know, I'm, I'm saying these are the best practices. This is what works for the average person. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's so much more. The impacts of this are so wide ranging too. Um, hearing you talk, it's just some of the symptoms that I've been having with dealing with the heat. It's, learning that it could be more nutrition than anything else. Um, that's fascinating for me. And it's just incredible that something I thought was kind of a niche esoteric area is actually governing a lot of the performance limitations that we have. Yeah, definitely. I worked with um, an athlete just recently. He ran in um, Doha, um, the marathon. Um, so obviously, you know, pretty pretty hot and humid over there. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so we did a range of strategies for him just in terms of that, you know, heat acclimation, cooling down his body, you know, frequency of feeding, um, uh, you know, because we've got to think about, all right, well, how can we um, promote blood flow to the area? Um, you know, carbohydrate, when we break that down, we produce what we call vasodilators, like nitric ox- oxide. Okay. So this can potentially help with blood flow more frequent feeding versus what a lot of us can do is have this whole bolus at one time um is is good as well to help encourage blood flow to the area fascinating because the advice i've heard most recently about that is that you want a well this is again being told to me but that you wanted a bolus because that would facilitate gastric emptying that if you don't have sufficient i don't know volume in in your stomach there would just not that the emptying wouldn't happen yeah yeah no um it's kind of like that correct in in one way it can help gastric emptying but if you think you've got to put it then in the exercise perspective and our gut's just going to be it's it's slowing down um and then if we're giving it carbohydrate you know as we know energy density and those types of things will will slow the gut down um so if we give our gut more small regular frequent you know, intake, it's easier for the gut to handle. Mm. Um, and, and then it's just going to promote that kind of, yeah, the, the better blood flow. So we, we've got a study that's already been done um, um, in that area that, that showed like we actually compared, I didn't do it, um, uh, they compared carbohydrate intake um, versus protein um, versus water intake. Um, and they gave um, these nutrients to the individuals. Again, they were running for a couple hours or so, 
and they were checking to see, well, you know, what, what's better and um, is there any option that um, helps prevent the damage that we get to the gut? Okay. Um, and basically what they found from that in, in brief is that both carbohydrate and protein intake help protect the gut. However, protein intake increased symptoms because obviously having protein is going to slow things down in your gut. Right. Um, whereas carbohydrate um, was was well tolerated, and just having water, um, we got a whole heap of injury because again, we're not getting you know nutrients and stuff, and and helping promote blood flow, etc., to the gut as good as we can with the carbs. So let me ask a follow-up question then. If um, if your if your research supports a steady kind of low dose delivery of carbohydrate, is that an argument for sport drink over gels or chews or something like that? Um, not not um, in terms of the the form. Like each individual can can do it in either form, but it's more like whenever I do plans for individuals, I I we use a range of options because again you know endurance sport you'll get things like flavor fatigue of course yeah um so we'll but i'll be um i guess in a way a bit mathematical with knowing that there's flexibility in it but um i'll say okay well this amount this volume of if we're having the sports drink or whatever concentrated mix we're having or this volume of if we're having the gel or if it's a wrap or whatever um, and kind of like every, it might be every 15, 20 minutes, it's going to depend on the event, obviously. Um, but that's kind of how I'll break it up and I'll, and I'll kind of alternate depending on, on the athlete. Cool. So the thing that we need to also think about is when we take the carbs on board, then we also need to think about that fluid coming in. Cause if we're just taking, uh, um, like real concentrated forms of carbs without the fluid, Obviously, that's not going to empty from the gut well. So we also need to think of that fluid intake. Right. So there's uh, this this episode didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. I'll be perfectly honest. I uh, we <laughs> in a good way though. <laughs> oh, I think in a wonderful way. Um, so you know, I think we did a, a fair job of covering FODMAP, but we, then the tangent that we got on about you know sport nutrition in general, I think was was amazing. Um, but I do want to bring it back to uh, to you know the the ostensible subject of this episode, and uh, and ask you. Um, ask put you on the spot a little bit and say if if you have an athlete who comes to you who maybe you know just like your uh, your Spanish case study uh, you know is far away uh, can't necessarily get in to do laboratory testing what in your experience is sort of the the best case scenario or the best practices for someone who says these are the symptoms I experience what should I be doing yeah um Ideally, I'd say um, see a qualified sports dietitian that has an interest in that area. Um, like just like myself, yeah, I'm a dietitian, but I don't. I choose not to see people with allergies, et cetera, et cetera, just because my area is not focused in that. And I'd much rather send someone to the person that has the experience in that area. So um, try and find that out. Um, over here in Australia, we have like an association, so I'm sure. Like in Canada, you've got an association there with dietitians, so you'll be able to, yes, do. yeah, do it, do a search um, there, or you know, obviously you can see people online, etc. Um, I would make sure I have a thorough background. I would check 
what I need to medically as well. Um, and then I, what I do is I find out a lot of background about the symptoms, like when is it happening, um, what point of the race, what are we doing race nutrition-wise, what are we doing leading diet-wise, does it just happen in racing, does it happen in training, is it also happening daily? Um, and then um, based on that information, um, then I can start to develop a plan and get the information I need to try and, from my experience, um, understand where I think it could be happening from. And then what I do is I develop a plan and I always, always, always will get them to implement this in the in their training um, and then in race day. And my plan will be specific if I'm doing a race nutrition plan, it's specific to that race. So this is very much something that you should not be trying to fix on your own. It's It sounds like definitely having the professional advice is the way to go. It's ideal. You know, I just find like, I mean, they can, but I'll, I find like a lot of people just majority will get, you know, do a lot of this guesswork and eventually um, then that may be when they come and come and see us. So um, yeah, but I think, yeah, if you want to, if you want an easier option, um, save all the frustration. Cause as we know, like training for these events takes, you know, takes time away from family, etc. So, and then if we go and race and we have this disaster, then we probably want to keep doing it. Um, so if you can kind of, you know, just have an easier streamline approach, I think why not do that? Yeah, you kind of took the words out of my mouth. I mean, yeah, we we spend we pay so much attention to metabolic training and conditioning and to equipment and uh, you know, Andrew and I are both mechanical engineers, so we kind of like, you know, we we get off on tangents about, you know, minute aerodynamic gains and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, he transfers a big one for us, but we we spend so much time on things that at a certain point become marginal. And to your point, if you're, you know, if you have to walk part of the marathon in an Ironman because, or if you have to make, you know, three or four stops at the, at the porta potties, uh, or you can't down nutrition. And so your, you know, your nutrition strategy is out the window, then all of your fine tuning and optimization in the other fields really accounts for bupkis because you're, you're leaving so much on the table. Um, so I totally agree. Yeah. For the thousands of dollars you might spend for aerodynamic gains, it will save you five <laughs> minutes on the bike. You could do this, spend you know a very small amount of money in comparison, and then gain an hour on your overall time. Well, unless you're flying to Australia to see Steph, in that which case, then maybe, you know. <laughs> yeah, but who doesn't want to go to Australia for a visit? Okay, though? fair point. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'll probably make you feel really shitty when you're doing the testing. <laughs> but usually athletes are happy with that because they're like, yes, you know, we got to this point and, um, you know, therefore we should have answers. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's it's good fun and I, I love seeing people do well, you know. And what I say is, as you've just said, you know, we spend all this time training, we spend money on the, on the equipment, but people don't think you need it. Like your gut is what we say is an athletic organ, so we need to train that as well. And totally. we know we can train the gut, but... The amount of people I work with, they just don't, they they kind of sort of, they might hear it, but they don't necessarily always appreciate it. So um, training the gut is really important. Just because you don't tolerate a certain amount now doesn't mean that, um, you know, you won't, you won't tolerate it if we do the training. So 
yeah, it also comes down to to that and having a good plan. That's brilliant. Um, I think this is an excellent place to do a quick wrap up. Um, again, Steph, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch, for instance, if they want to, um, you know, get your advice on nutrition, want to, um, I don't know how you do it. If you, you, you sell, you still have a, a private practice, right? So if they want to hire you as a nutritionist, um, where can they find you? How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my private practice is nutrition strategies. Um, so if they just head over to that website, um, there'll be email info there. Um, we've got a Facebook page, Instagram, so whichever's easy for them. Um, And I'll put that on in our show notes so that, that listeners can find stuff. Yep. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd, you know, encourage as well to check out, um, Monash University, we we are called, and I can send you the information. We're called Base B. Uh, what is it? B Active Sleep Exercise. Um, okay. And that we'll have research out there. We'll also have education there um, on this very area as well. So um, we've got a Facebook page where we um, put out the papers that we've we've published, um, and Perfect. we've just found out like two days ago that our paper has just been accepted in um, in the journal. So that paper on, on FODMAP and the impact that that has for athletes um, is, is going to be available very soon or is available actually already. So I can send you the link to that too. Yes, please do. Well, congratulations on the publication. Uh, thank you. Yeah, just takes a little bit of time with those papers. Ugh. And on a personal note, I'd like to say good luck with your PhD as well. I'm going on seven years right now, so <laughs> it's been a long journey. But uh, yeah, sometime I'll get it wrapped up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. You know, like I previously was just doing consulting and I I kind of was feeling quite stagnant um, and and now going into this research, I, I just love, um, I'm lucky that I work with incredible people and we all have that passion or interest in in, in endurance and, and wanting to help individuals and, and find out what's happening um, for me, um, find out more about the gut. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that you'll probably hear from me a couple of times because, yeah, this is uh, this is this this chat has definitely raised some answers or some questions rather. And some, uh, you know, some things are starting to fall into place, maybe in my head. So I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to shoot some questions at you in a little bit, Steph. Um, yeah. Thank you again for your time. It's been very eye opening for me as well. And it's highlighted problems that I didn't even realize were necessarily nutritional based. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how this resolves. Yeah, no pleasure. Thanks for um, having me on. Well, with that, uh, we'll sign off. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you uh, enjoy the show, please do tell your friends because that is how we get more people to hear quality information from smart people like Steph. And uh, do rate us on iTunes or wherever else you uh, get your podcasts. 